She's the very model of beauty as she sits on her throne, a lioness on guard at each arm. Her bare breasts, a wonder to behold, hang down the sides of her enormous belly, almost touching her thighs. Her arms and legs are draped in fat that seem to roll off of her and onto her throne. She's the earth mother of Chatalhuyuk. Fat was the original standard of beauty, and she is a voluptuous representation of the ultimate woman. But she's more than just a Neolithic centerfold. Her head is straight and uplifted. Her posture is rigid and commanding. Maybe she's a goddess. Maybe she's a queen. But either way, she's clearly in charge and unmistakably Neo. I'm Dr. Scott Schwartzfeger, a history professor with 20 years of experience and a knack for making history come alive. Too often historians focus on names and dates rather than the juicy story of how we came to be who we are today. History should never be boring because it's our story. Each week I unfold another chapter in the history of the world from a bird's eye view. This history is engaging, interesting, and relevant. This is the history you want to know, not what you were forced to learn. This is History Unbound. Welcome to History Unbound, the history you want to know, not what you were forced to learn. I'm your host, Dr. Schwartzfeger, and this is episode two. My name is Neo. Before we get started, I wanted to make a correction to episode one. A listener pointed out to me that I was using some old information. Uh, Okay, the listener was my daughter-in-law, but that's still really cool because that's how this is supposed to work. I know a few things about history, and I do my homework, and I try to be as accurate as possible, but sometimes things slip by. So, when I was talking about the Beatles, I said the Beatles still hold the record for having all five of the top five songs at the same time. Apparently, Drake broke that record a few years ago, and Taylor Swift has broken it again, but the Beatles held that honor for 54 years. I mean, even Michael Jackson, the king of pop, didn't break it. So... I think my point still stands. In the last episode, we talked about the origin of the species Homo sapiens sapiens, us. I should clarify that this is, in fact, a history podcast, but we're not really talking about history yet. History usually starts with the written record. What we're talking about now is actually anthropology. So, The English language has a great habit of taking several words from another language and smushing them together to make one long word in ours. That's what we have here. Anthropology comes from the Greek words anthropos, meaning man, in the sense of human being, and logos, meaning word, or study of. So anthropology is the study of human beings. It's typically divided into four subfields, cultural anthropology, physical anthropology, archaeology, and linguistics. Indiana Jones, of course, was an archaeologist. 
he always found the right dig site, because he had both sides of the medallion, and he discovered the great artifacts of the past, right? I mean, this is clearly the most romantic subfield of anthropology. So we're a little out of our field right now, but I think it's important to set the stage for the rise of civilizations, that transition from the Paleolithic era to the Neolithic. Oh, there we go again. Two more smushed together words. Paleo just means old. So those of you who have tried a paleo diet of some kind, and who hasn't really, you were just trying to eat what people ate before there were civilizations, right? natural stuff. Lithic means stone, so Paleolithic is Old Stone Age, and Neolithic is New Stone Age. And that's what we're talking about today, Neolithic. So when I say that word, I can't help but think of Keanu Reeves in The Matrix, correcting Agent Smith as he's being choked out in the train station by saying, My name is Neo! But that actually fits. He was becoming something new. Now, the story of going from Paleo to Neo is also a story of climate change. Every so often, the Earth experiences a distortion in its orbit, which tugs at the northern hemisphere, pulling it away from the sun, and at the same time, causing a slight wobble in its axis. This creates a monster of an ice age. The last one started roughly 100,000 years ago and didn't end until about 11,000 years ago. This was the Vorm glaciation, also known as the Wisconsin Ice Age, as it affected North America. It was on the backdrop of this ice age that humans followed their food across the globe, hunting for their protein and foraging for their fiber. The invention of the bow and arrow around 20,000 years ago revolutionized this process, but they were still forced to find and follow the herds. And since they didn't really have an alien monolith to give them information, they were learning about the natural world around them through trial and error. They then passed on information about what would help them and what would harm them. That had to be an interesting process, right? Fred wonders what would happen if he eats toxic rhubarb leaves, and so he chews on some and keels over dead. His best friend Barney looks at him and says, Yeah, but what about the stocks? I think I'll give those a try. Turns out, they make great pies. I don't know what that looked like, but Ice Age artists did give us some clues in their cave drawings. Most of these depict the hunt and catalog the animals available to humans. The Chauvet Caves in northern France are a great example. They feature what you might expect, like bison, aurochs, antelopes fleeing the hunters. But the Chauvet artists also drew rhinoceroses and lions in incredible detail. Wait, rhinoceroses in France? Really? The artwork was good, too, by any standard. I mean, seriously, if I could draw that well, I'd open a gallery. If I knew how. But this is also where we find fertility figures, like the Earth Mother of Chateauhuyuk from our intro. There are other similar carvings, too, like the Venus of Willendorf in Germany or the Venus of La Salle in central France. She was carved around 20,000 years ago on a cave wall. She's holding a horn with food or drink in her right hand while her left hand rests on her ample belly. She's flaunting her sexy curves for all to see. In the Ice Age, a well-fed woman was an important woman, and worthy of being immortalized in stone. But as the earth warmed, the ice receded. 
maybe at this point I should mention one of my core beliefs, which is that history can help us solve, or at least understand, modern problems. Looking backwards can help us look forwards. So this is definitely true with climate change. We talk a lot about global warming nowadays, and climate anxiety is a real thing, especially with my younger students. Because, I mean, when it comes to climate, we hear everything from, if I can't see it, then it ain't real. So stay calm and drive your diesel. I don't know, actually, I think the new diesels are more climate friendly, but okay. And I also hear people from the other side talking about how global warming is a unique event, and it's all because of us. And we only have 12 years left or whatever to reverse the damage or it'll be too late. Now, I'm obviously not a climate scientist, so I can't see everything they see. But what I can do is use history as a guide. When we look at the past, we don't have to paint with such a broad brush. We can look through very specific lenses. For example, I can look at the past through the lens of gender, or the lens of race, or religion, or science, or even, yes, climate. And what I see are warming and cooling periods throughout history that happen naturally, without any help from humans. In fact, there are numerous events that are framed by their particular warming or cooling periods, like the transition from the medieval warming period, which made the Black Plague of the 14th century so much worse, to the Little Ice Age that followed, in which parts of Europe experienced a winter without a summer. There are a lot of great books on climate history, by the way, that I would recommend if you're interested. One that I especially like is The Little Ice Age by Brian Fagan. It's well-reasoned and a fair treatment of the topic. So then, given that the Earth goes through climate cycles naturally, I think the real question should be, are we making this particular warming phase worse with our wastes and our emissions and, I don't know, our islands of plastic bottles floating in the ocean? And really, can we be better stewards of our environment? And I think the answer to those questions is absolutely yes. Okay, stepping down off my soapbox now. At the end of our Neolithic Ice Age, when the glaciers melted and retreated, vast swaths of grassland were exposed, large valleys rich with sediment called alluvial plains in the northern Middle East became what's known as the Fertile Crescent. Reindeer and woolly mammoth migrated south and people went with them, looking like a scene from that animated movie Ice Age, only maybe without Sid the Sloth. I guess I should say, Sid the Sloth. I, I can't do that as well as John Leguizamo. Sid the Sloth. Oh, well. Seriously, though, who doesn't love John Leguizamo? The guy's the best. Now go, fly, be free. Little flightless bird. Uh, my bad. As early as 11,000 years ago, people started to slow down and realized that if they planted veggies and grains, rather than just forage for them, they'd have a more predictable food supply. Women were the innovators here because they did most of the foraging. They took wild seeds and planted them in the fertile earth, tended them and harvested them, et voila, the advent of agriculture, also known as their Neolithic Revolution. It was one of the more important events in human history. Men took their cue from women, as we often do, and started to capture and breed animals rather than just chase them around. This kind of farming and animal husbandry was small-scale at first, but it was still a revolution nonetheless. 
And it was the proverbial, once you start down this path, forever will it dominate your destiny kind of thing. Communities arose and people became dependent on a constant food supply, and sometimes even a surplus. The transition from hunting and gathering to tilling and ranching also gave Neolithic people more time to do other things. Things like create art, make pottery, experiment with metallurgy, weave textiles, and answer big questions that make us unique as human beings. Who are we really? And where do we come from? Is there something bigger than us that made us? And if so, is is it still around? Comedic geniuses Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner did a radio sketch in the early 60s called The 2,000-Year-Old Man. Part of that routine, if I remember it correctly, was about a caveman named Phil, who was bigger than everyone else and took advantage of that until one day, lightning strikes Phil and kills him. To which Mel Brooks says, There's something bigger than Phil. What that is exactly is a philosophical question that all people groups will answer in their own unique ways. But as humans created communities that became Neolithic villages, they started to transform the natural landscape and truly dominate the earth. In 2007, a team of researchers started combing through 50-year-old Corona spy photographs from the Middle East. These folks identify themselves as satellite archaeologists, by the way. How do you get that job? Because there was less urbanization then, they discovered thousands of previously unknown ruins, including a Neolithic village called Tel Brak. It's what they believed to be the world's very first cities. But the great Neolithic village, the one that's synonymous with Neolithic villages, was in Anatolia. We'll come back to that area quite a bit. It's modern-day Turkey. And the village was called Çatalhöyük. This village was over 32 acres of urban sprawl and was inhabited for over 2,000 years. 2,000 years. From a little over 9,000 to a little over 7,000 years ago. The buildings were made of mud, brick, and timber, and they looked like a large Pueblo village with flat roofs and square window frames. If you looked from one end of the city to the other, you'd see nothing but a mass of buildings with courtyards scattered in between. The homes were bright and modern with painted walls and functional fireplaces, and each dwelling was the same basic size and design, sort of like long rectangles, but they were different elevations. And they were all connected. So you'd travel from one place to another, not by streets on the ground, but by walkways and ladders on the rooftops. The villagers themselves grew wheat and beans and developed copper smelting technology. They also mined obsidian, that black, shiny rock that they could make almost anything out of. They made weapons and tools and images of their gods, which took exaggerated forms of power animals like bulls and leopards. The people of Chatalhuyuk became rich by trading this obsidian and, and the copper with the other communities around them. And it was here that civilization began. To seek out new life and new civilizations. 
to boldly go where no man has gone before. So at this point, we should probably talk about what we mean when we use that word civilization or civilization, as William Shatner said in his Canadian accent. The word itself comes from the Latin civitas, meaning city. When historians and anthropologists talk about civilizations, however, they have loose criteria that they use. These vary slightly with who you talk to, but in general, in order to be a civilization, a society has to have seven things. Okay, ready for this? Seven things. First, not surprising, is large-scale agriculture. Not small family farms, but huge fields growing way more than one family or even one city could consume. There are a variety of theories as to how and why this got started, but I don't want to get in the weeds here. Get it? Into the weeds? Yeah, I'm a dad. Okay, agriculture and animal husbandry are much more difficult and time-consuming than hunting and gathering, but the payoff in a stable food supply is really worth it. A civilization has to feed its citizens. Second is monumental architecture. Now, by this, we don't mean dwellings like the homes of Chatalhuyuk, but rather large, permanent structures, palaces, temples, city centers, skyscrapers of the ancient world. Great examples would be the ziggurats of Mesopotamia that we'll talk about next week, or the famous pyramids of Egypt that will be the week after that, or even the temples of Tenochtitlan in the Aztec Empire. I can't wait to get to that episode. Third would be an established religion. This is something near and dear to me because we find out so much about a people by looking at how they answer those big questions about the nature of humanity, the origin of life. So, an interesting thing about Neanderthals. Ah, I said Neanderthal because that's how I grew up pronouncing it but we're not supposed to pronounce it that way anymore uh, because the name corresponds to an actual place in Germany. And in the German language, TH doesn't make the th sound. Uh, so the cr- correct pronunciation is Neanderthal. Okay, sorry. Anyway, Neanderthals buried their dead with flowers and tools and weapons, pr- presumably what they would need in the next life. This implies that Neanderthals believed in some kind of afterlife and therefore possibly even worshipped deities. But this is not what we mean by an established religion. An established religion would have a very specific pantheon of gods, each with their own skills and function. You would know exactly what kind of personality they have, how they rank in the pantheon, who their parents were, how the world came into being, right? That sort of thing. You also need set rules to live by, a religious code that usually corresponds to a civil law code. Organized religions need a recognized priesthood as well, people who can interpret the religion for the average farmer. This is usually a full-time gig and can correspond to or even determine your social class. And priests were often male and female, both wielding an enormous amount of power in a society. I mean, they were the spokespeople for the gods. Lastly, a religion needs established places and spaces in which to worship the gods and carry out sacrifices and rituals, right? That's that monumental architecture we were just talking about. Next, a civilization needs a monetary system and a trade network. This is a method for citizens to buy and sell, to build wealth, establish relations with other communities. And initially, this is a barter system. So, 
let's say I make sandals and clothes out of leather and goat hair cloth, and I need to buy some jewelry for my wife. You happen to make jewelry from stones and precious metals. We agree on a fair exchange and trade for the goods we need. Works the same for trading with other communities. It's an efficient system. And it wasn't really until 5,000 years ago that the people of Mesopotamia developed the shekel and became the first civilization to use an actual form of currency. And related to that, civilizations inevitably develop social classes. These are socioeconomic divisions, determining rich and poor, free and slave. And they can also be linked to their established religion. Your social class can correspond to your ranking in the religion and determine things like how close you may be to an eternal reward. Specialized labor is also part of this. So if you needed a certain kind of pot or a specific color of cloth, there's likely someone who does just that. And only that. Civilizations also need a written language. This one gets a little tricky because some societies like the early Russians of Kievan Rus met most of our criteria, but they did not have a written language. That is, until two Orthodox priests from the Byzantine Empire created one for them. Likewise, the Inca of Peru had a system of cords and knots called kipu that they used for counting things. But these kipu could also tell a story. So, does that count? More on these in future episodes. Okay, so where were we? Uh, Large-scale agriculture, monumental architecture, established religion, monetary systems, social classes, written language. Okay, that's six. So, last but not least is an organized state. So, what do we mean by that? Well, a civilization has to be organized and run efficiently. It needs to make money. So, it taxes its people and makes sure everybody chips in. The state also develops a bureaucracy. People of different ranks and position to manage it along with managing any satellite states. They also usually write a legal code of some kind, with things you cannot do and what happens to you if you do them. This is also usually connected to your social status. The laws don't work the same for the wealthy and well-connected as they do for the average coppersmith. And finally, the state maintains a monopoly on violence. So, I can't kill my coworker, but the state can put me to death. Right? I can't torture the guy down the street, but the state can flog me as punishment for a crime. Now, I want to point out that there is a difference between civilization and civilized. For example, when the Europeans explored and colonized the part of North America that became the United States and Canada, there were no civilizations. The indigenous peoples were still mostly hunting and gathering, while a few had transitioned to Neolithic villages. But that does not mean that they weren't civilized. In many ways, they were more civilized than the civilizations who were pushing them out of existence. It's also interesting to note that south of the future U.S. border, there were at least five major civilizations that meet all of our criteria. In many ways, in fact, they were grander and more advanced than the Europeans who would come to overthrow them. So, where are we at? In just two short episodes, we've gone from early hominids, through the Ice Age, from hunting and gathering to the first cities, and we've hammered out just what we mean by the term civilization. We're covering a lot of time here, but this is where the bird's eye view comes in that we talked about in episode one. 
I mean, I could dedicate a whole several episodes on just the Neolithic Revolution alone, but even I'd be bored with that. Join us next week. We'll talk about the first civilization and how it became an empire as we look at the first of our river worlds. You've been listening to History Unbound. For sources and show notes, please visit historyunbound.com. Our producer is Amy Jones. Research, writing, and editing is done by me, Dr. Schwartzfeger. You can follow History Unbound on Instagram and Facebook at History Unbound Pod. For more discussion, community, or to get cool stuff, support us at patreon.com forward slash history unbound. Thanks for listening.